Hi, hello. Welcome to No Show. Jeff and I this week have a very special topic, and it is inspired by a trip that I took recently. I went to Boston, Massachusetts in winter. Always the best time. I just went to a thing called the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, and it's now become this famous conference that a lot of you know sports teams go to and tech companies, and you get to kind of see celebrities, and you get to see people like Malcolm Gladwell, and you get to see all these different kinds of folks talk about the intersection of sports and data and money. And one thing became very clear as I was going through a lot of these sessions, and that is that teams, sports teams... They want to be in the property business. They want to build out compounds of commercial and residential and hotel and multi-use competition space. And they all want it to be in this tightly maintained, brand-heavy, high-occupancy mini-city. You know, after, I think over the last 20, 30 years or so, there's been kind of a trend in um, in, uh, kind of corporate thinking, I guess, that you want to divest yourselves of those kinds of things. You know, like as Jeff and I have talked about on, on the pod before, you know, like Marriott doesn't own the vast majority of the properties that it is affiliated with. It 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 licenses out its its name because, you know, when you have to start dealing with property, you have to start dealing with things like, you know, rent, you know got to deal with the physical plant of it. You got to deal with water and electricity and guest complaints and all that kind of stuff. That I think especially for, for, for entities like sports teams has changed. Why wouldn't they want this, right? People have already made the decision to travel to your entertainment zone where the longer you stay on the grounds, the more money you spend. And as Jeff and I were talking about this over the last week, it reminded us of someplace magical that just happens to be celebrating its 50th anniversary. That's right, kids. This week, we're going to Disney World. Controlling every asset in a neighborhood, tracking all the data points around purchasing and fan behavior, getting considerable tax breaks and decision-making power to do so, it's a logical step for all these teams, and especially teams that are flush with cash and and cash that is, I think, increasingly coming from private equity, um, which also conveniently has connections to real estate and entertainment and business improvement organizations, and all of those forces make these kinds of decisions to expand and make these little mini cities feel really obvious. But there was a time where it wasn't that obvious. We live in an age where the scale of Disney World now is being attempted. You you see it in Legoland, you see it in Universal Studios, Google campuses, but they're nowhere near what Walt Disney and Disney World was able to do. And it speaks to how unusual Disney World was and is. Isn't that right, Jeff? It is. I mean, nothing, nothing compares to Disney. Let's start with a few numbers, right? Orlando Metro, the impact of the mouse. When Walt Disney arrived with this project, Orlando is about 300,000 people. It's now 2 million people. The property itself, owned by Disney, is 27,000 acres, 40 square miles. They do about 50 million tourists a year to Orlando. And this isn't, an, you know, this isn't something I've seen in any metric, but how many of those visitor arrivals have something to do with the mouse, right? And I think taxpayers, uh, and by the way, taxpayers are people like you and me who go there. They really are the voters, right? They go there and they fund everything in all of Central Florida. Also apocryphal, uh, Jack Kerouac died in Orlando. 
<laughs> which <laughs> not to be morbid about it, but yeah, his mom lived in Orlando. And was, like he, a, was he supposed to go to Disney the next year? <laughs> I know. He died. When did he die? 69, maybe. So I think construction was going on, but it's like, oh, wow. That's metaphor for America, baby. When Uncle Walt had uh, this idea in the early 60s, I think he looked at the unchecked commercial development that had sprung up around Disneyland and Anaheim. That's one of the things that I think people don't uh, quite appreciate. I think they always kind of feel because we live in such a Disney-fied world and a world in which Disney has essentially since the late 80s has kind of been on this march to just control things. <laughs> um, we don't realize that there was, a, there was a time in which they maybe didn't have that kind of level of control around the Disneyland complex uh, in suburban LA. There've been a tremendous amount of clutter around what his vision for Disneyland should have been. So we thought, you know what, the next time that we do this, I'm going to have total control of every aspect of the theme park experience. And while that dream is alive and it's with all sorts of companies who kind of want to make their own utopia, that dream is as old as America itself. There was a distinct intersection, I think, of politics and finance and branding and geography that made Disney World possible and hard to replicate. And, it, you know, his vision was so distinct and so powerful that it survived his death because he did. People forget he died in 1966 and the groundbreaking. I'm not even sure if the groundbreaking for the park had even begun. It was only a plan. When we talked about Vegas in our CES episode, uh, one of the things we touched on, there are three or four gaming-centric hospitality companies that run the whole strip. Caesars Entertainment, MGM, Sand, Winds. Uh, you think about major cities in America, and there are a multitude of businesses and why people go there and travel there. In a city like my hometown, Cincinnati, you've got huge players like Kroger and P&G and Macy's and Cintas. But even those top four don't make up more than 10% of the employment numbers for the city. There's a long, robust set of companies that drive travel demand to CVG. Uh, but the ninth busiest airport in America is Orlando, and it's basically because of one business. Right? Disney employs over 77,000 jobs directly, easily the biggest sing single-site employer in the U.S. Uh, by comparison, Orlando, Universal Orlando Resort, employs about 25,000 people. And tourism overall in a city like Orlando or in the city of Orlando supports 41% of the total workplace, 460,000 jobs. It's the equivalent of the entire city of Buffalo, New York. So when, when COVID stopped travel, I read an article that unemployment across the country, right? It was in the high teens, I think we all remember. But in Orlando, it was more than a third of all workers. And because there's so much overlap within a household, more than half of households lost one income. That and the real revolution for, for Disney World is that they stayed on site. They committed, they tripled down, quadrupled down on the land. They didn't, I think, unlike a lot of other modern American businesses who will move and sports teams for that matter, who will move if there are economic incentives to do it. And, and maybe Disney World would do this at some point, who knows? But for 50 years, they absolutely committed to Central Florida, North Central Florida. And I think they were able to only reaffirm their control of it. You know, just kind of going back even for their Disneyland opened in 1955. Mm -hmm. It was only 160 acres of orange and walnut groves in Orange County. The, the, the Disneyland could fit into the parking lots of Disney World. Yeah, I mean, from the top floors of the Marriott World Center, 
biggest hotel in Orlando or darn close if it's not the biggest. From the top of the World Center at night, you can see all the lights and where they go dark. But the fun part is Disney owns it all. Where it's dark, all that means is they haven't developed it yet. They've got it all. Right. Uncle Walt, before he uh, committed to Orlando area, he considered Miami and Tampa and very seriously considered Miami and Tampa, but was scared that hurricanes might be too disruptive. And I love the idea of, of Walt Disney as climate advocate and prognosticator. That's, inc- that's incredible to me that it's like, whoa, this is way too fragile of an ecosystem for me to put my park in. I need to go inland. He was inspired to do Ep- the Epcot part of it, particularly, uh, but really the whole park by the World's Fair in New York in 1964. I think there was a, a vision then, as with all World Fairs in the 20th century, this kind of idea of Tomorrowland and how technology and perfection is only a couple of iterations away on the product, uh, on the production line. But then he also looked at, at the fact that only 5% of the visitors uh, who were coming to Disneyland were coming to east of the Mississippi. Yeah, I mean, the, the, only the Griswolds were going to drive all the way from Chicago to Southern California. Yeah. And he was, yeah. And, it, and, and, it, and, and again, you know, he hated all the businesses surrounding him in Anaheim. It was like, I've done all this work politically. <laughs> I've done all the, I've done all the deals that I needed to make this happen. And then everybody else around me in suburban LA is taking advantage of, of my hard work. And of course the tax structure in Florida is very different than it is in California. Florida is still well known for having no state income tax. The state generates all its income on sales tax, death tax, and of course, tourist taxes. The annual economic impact just for central Florida was 75 billion in government receipts from tourism. Everything, right? That's tickets sold to park, vendors, food suppliers. That's not just Disney stuff, but 75 billion from tourism. Orlando's tourism industry took in, I think, 6 billion state and local tax in 18. They also have one of the strangest urban, private, I mean, I, mean, I shouldn't say this anymore because I'm sure other entities have been able to finagle this out of, out of city and state governments, but they had, I think, a landmark arrangement with the state and they created this thing called the Reedy Creek Improvement District. Reedy Creek was essentially created by Disney and the lawmakers of Florida at the time to have its own police force, its own fire department. Uh, Reedy Creek has taxing power. It has total control over the building code. It was unprecedented. Disney can issue their own liquor licenses to themselves. Um, They largely don't use the infrastructure of the surrounding counties. Instead, they build their own water, their own fire departments, their own transportation, their own emergency services, you name it. Lake Buena Vista is an incorporated city. Technically, LBV is not run by Disney, but the city of Lake Buena Vista collects taxes. And Disney controls the whole city board. So basically, Disney collects taxes from its customers, its employees, and the businesses that operate in its orbit, and then control how it's spent and what the infrastructure and what they do with it. In 2019, nine of Orange County's 10 largest taxpayers were classified as tourism companies. Disney World, Universal Studios, uh, and then among others, Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, Wyndham, Westgate, the whole list. So Disney gets to collect all those taxes, or sorry. LBV gets to collect all those taxes. But like with the big automakers in Detroit, the whole area is economically tied to Disney World in a way that is just wackily artificial. The hospitality ecosystem in Dallas or Boston or Bozeman is just that. It's this interlocking system that depends on culture and sports and business and the economy and weather and coffee shops and food scene and just about everything. Orlando, no. 
The mouse controls everything. Whenever they raise their rates on anything, it ripples through Central Florida hotels like a tsunami. Most of the development, even if it doesn't appear to you while you're in Orlando to be something Disney related, most of the development is based on 100-year land leases. So real estate developers of the hotels and shopping centers and strip malls and residential apartment complex subdivisions, they're all built on Disneyland. You go to buy a house. You work for Disney, you want to buy a house, you're probably buying it on Disneyland. You're giving your money right back to a lender that might be controlled by Disney, paying off Disney for that land that you may or may not end up owning. Now, Disney controls, not just through taxation and through land. Uh, they actually get involved in how buildings are run. So uh, when I look at you know, how the physical building or a website or marketing material for the businesses kind of in the orbit of Disney... Disney puts those businesses in a real pinch too, right? Uh, if you want to use the term Magic Kingdom or Epcot Center, uh, you're going to get flagged and you're probably going to get a letter from legal. So when it comes to demand generation, though, Disney's brilliant. Business is slow. They'll create a marathon. Next thing you know, hotels are filled up again. So as much as hotels uh, and a lot of the community that kind of understands the dynamic around the business, as much as they like to complain about you know, the sinister overlord from the mouse, Disney brings the business that they're all after in the first place. Like Disney's revenue management focus is less about sleeping rooms and more about creating wait times, right? So it's staffing F&B outlets based on ride times. Uh, so if a ride gets backed up and there's a 30-minute wait, they measure that and restaff so that people can buy food and beverage while they wait. They're putting more effort into things like that uh, to ensure extra foot traffic that goes through their gift shops, right? When we talk about Vegas and how everything goes through the casino, you can't get out of a ride at Disney without walking through the gift shop. Uh, but do they intentionally back those things up a little bit to make sure that the crowd stays a little longer in the gift shop, to make sure that line for that ride, they slow that down just enough to make sure the line goes past that extra concession stand that they want to sell a little bit? Yeah, probably. There is a great series of articles on Medium by the author Cory Doctorow, who did a great book 20 years ago called Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, which we'll post uh, in the notes for the show that talk about this very idea. And yeah, it's really fascinating to watch how it's evolved over the last 50 years, uh, just in, in thinking and in cost. Disney World essentially functions as the static environment. Disney properties are able to thrive because of this total control, which kind of goes against the central tenant of innovation and capitalism for that matter, which posits, at least on the surface, that real progress happens politically, economically, technologically, when you have a bunch of players all involved in sharing ideas. There, we're all on the same page here and we're moving towards one thing. But Disney, I mean, I, I guess to some degree does that, but like when you just look at the island of what Disney World is, Disney makes vastly more money on non-hotel revenue streams, you know, like Las Vegas casino hotels, you know, in Vegas, use the sleeping room as a way to capture a casino player. You know, you're going to come here, we're going to get you for 170 for the night, and then you're going to go downstairs, you're going to play the tables, you're going to go to the restaurant, you're going to go to the drinks, get drinks, you're going to go to the show. And that now makes up way more of a um, part of the stream than you just, you know, go and sleep in there for the night. And this attitude kind of suppresses the marketplace since hotels require rate growth to drive profit. Now, Orlando hotels, right, they, you have to look at Disney as this titanic force. 
but it's one you, you cannot compete with, and not just because of its scale. Disney shares no hotel statistics, right? I mean, you listen to Disney's earnings calls. It's all about the entertainment business, which is really what they see themselves in. Like you said, you know, the gaming industries rarely talk about RevPar. They talk about how much, you know, what their profits were, and they'll make as much from retail as they do from sleeping rooms. Same thing at Disney. Disney and Las Vegas resorts are the only exceptions that I know of in America that don't report to STR. They don't give their sleeping room data to the industry body. Why don't they do that? Well, because they frankly don't have to. Uh, They don't. I think what it really shows, Matt, is how they view the hotels in their orbit. They're not competing for the sleeping room guest revenue, just like what you said. They're competing. Get them into Orlando because they're coming to our park anyway. And then capture all that revenue when they get there, right? And if it's not through the ticket entry cost, uh, then it's going to be on the parking and it's also going to be on the gift shop. It's going to be on the fast track, you know, to get to the front of the line. You want to pay a little $50 extra, we'll put you at the front of the line, right? They'll make more money on that kind of stuff. Of course, Orlando was the, you know, for a while there, I don't know if this is the case now, but it was the all-time heavyweight champion of timeshares, Central Florida. And like, I remember, especially in the 80s and 90s, I feel like timeshares sold themselves on proximity to Disney World. The timeshare market's probably a bigger drag on the hotels than the mouse. At least the mouse is a demand generator, right? Timeshare volume in Orlando, I think there are about 450 hotels, but 350 registered timeshare units complexes. Uh, Hilton Grand Vacations, headquartered in Orlando. Marriott Vacation Club International, headquartered in Orlando. Wyndham, you name it. All the big heavy hitters, all in Orlando for this reason. Uh, So between Disney that shares no data with Star uh, and the timeshares that are technically outside of the industry, hotels are basically blind to two-thirds of the overnight stays that go on around them in Orlando. That's got to be such a burn for other hotels because they complain so much about being, well, maybe not so much. That's an exaggeration. But I can't imagine they love being subservient to the mouse. But then they have to kind of pay pay the rodents its due, right? I mean, it, like like Disney is the generator of all things commercial in the area. <laughs> no doubt. Managers of timeshare, part of the problem is not just a lack of data. It's the model itself too, right? So Disney's using its sleeping room to drive people into the park and make money that way. Timeshares, while they're making money on the overnight stay, it's a very different model and hard for a hotel to compete with. Managers of a timeshare get paid for occupancy. They don't care about rate. The incentive is not there. So a timeshare owner has basically three options with their property. You either use it for yourself, you trade it in for points, or you have the timeshare management company list it and sell it for you. And so a timeshare manager gets paid on the nights they rent out for you. So whether they're doing it $70 a night or $100 a night, there's no incentive for that timeshare manager to really push the price. And that suppresses the price all around the city. If there's no incentive for 350 units and you've got 450 units, right? That big glut of inventory that's never incented to get price up has pretty much left Orlando without rate growth for 15 years. Have you ever been to Disney World? Yes. So I've been a couple of times. I've been to Disney when I was about three or four years old. The uh, my, my parents, it was probably, uh, they got divorced right around then. I think there's some correlation. And then I went again with Heather when we were in our last year of college. Go figure. 
we did spring break. Uh, we got in the car last minute, no plans, and went to Orlando. We had a phenomenal time. I have no idea why we actually chose that, though. I think SeaWorld was the attraction. And then we ended up going to Disney for a night or day or something. By the way, you're not the only child of divorce who gets treated with a trip to Disney World. I think that has that became, at least for a generation, that became a standard issue band-aid for, for all the shit that was happening. Well, guess what? You'll have an opportunity to experience something completely new if you decide to go back to Disney World because... Uh, it's been the news a lot lately. It just opened a couple of weeks ago. The desire for contained utopian world lives on today, and it lives on in a brand new space at Disney World called Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. This has been written up a lot. Our friend, the points guy, talked about it. Everybody's been doing reviews of it. A lot of people out there know the, the general contours of it. You come and live your very own Star Wars story during this two-night, 48-hour, roughly immersive adventure at the resort. And you stay at this hotel, Hyperion Hotel, and uh, it is essentially a step closer to uh, Westworld, right? You sign in, you pay your $5,300 if you're two adults and one child, and and you are part of this immersive experience. You walk out, there's characters walking around, you get lightsaber instruction, there's a dinner showcase theater. Do you want to help Chewbacca load boxes up in the attic? Do you want to help a mechanic smuggle something that'll help the Jedi? All of that stuff is on the plate. And I think, I need to go look this up. I think they kind of choose or people can get plucked out for kind of extra special adventures where you now go kind of on your own course during the two days to help this larger grand narrative happens. So, I mean, the real question here, Jeffrey, is should we go and review it and call it a business expense to the IRS? We absolutely should, except I'm not going to. <laughs> Come on. Why not? Because uh, I hate the Orlando airport. MCO is the worst airport in the U.S. You'll do it for the airport. Uh, no, it's the airport. That's where you make your stand. I love it. Absolutely. I love Star Wars. I'm a Star Wars kid. Uh, I'm a Star Wars adult, but MCO is the worst airport in the country. I hate it. Every day is amateur day. TSA lines are filled 90% with annoyed parents, screaming kids, strollers, and every passenger, I'm convinced, has something that's not allowed to go on a plane in their carry-on. Which leads me to my question of the week. Every week, I come up with a question that Jeff has not heard. Jeff. Congratulations. You have just been awarded a free Disney-themed wedding on one of the properties. This is a big thing. I don't know if anybody out there has ever seen Disney Fairytale Weddings. It was a show that kind of goes into all the different experiences that can happen to all the Disney properties. People want to get engaged, get married, and you can do it in, in, in all kinds of different themes. One of the more interesting <laughs> components of it is that if you actually want some of the primetime real estate of doing it in Disneyland or Disney World, you have to do it like at midnight or at 6 a.m. because they don't want to take that away as revenue generating space. So you have these people who are living their Disney um, dream, but they end up having to do it at 6 a.m., which I'm sure makes for uh, a lot of commentary in the bridal party. You have to choose one theme, one movie. And or one space in the Disney universe. And this will be the theme. You're, you've been married for many years, of course, but let's call this a vow renewal. Is there anything more apropos for a wedding than having it in the Tower of Terror? Great answer. The Animal Kingdom, though, when you're talking about doing it overnight, I think that's what I would want. 
three o'clock in the morning when when only the lions you know only things with nocturnal vision and we have to go out there and really like do you really mean it this time sure 25 years later do you really mean it so you want a, a safari situation like an animal park safari we're out here it's just us together it's just me you and the lions baby that's sweet that's sweet uh Disney World. Well, maybe we'll go down at some point. Yeah, I know you're not into it, but I might check this out. As always, thank you. And uh, more on Disney, I feel, in our future. There's always something interesting to talk about with those cats, literally. Do you think there's enough to to do a Legoland episode of its own? Oh, man, please. Legoland just opened up here like about an hour uh, north of New York City. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you.